Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Today I'll be speaking with Dennis Bartok and Jeff Joseph, authors of the book A Thousand Cuts, Film Collectors in the Digital Age, published in 2016 by University Press of Mississippi. Dennis and Jeff trace the story of movie fans who collect actual celluloid film. While the idea may seem innocuous, many of these collectors dealt with legal issues and other forms of intimidation. The authors interviewed both well-known and lesser-known collectors who reviewed their experiences. Welcome to Dennis Bartok and Jeff Joseph. Hi, Dennis. Hey, Joel. And Jeff, you there too? Hi, Joel. Yes, I am. Great. Yeah, I don't always interview two people at the same time, although one famous time I had six people on at one time, and I still can't believe I had that technology, the technologically down, but... We did it. Anyway, um, it's great to talk to you both. Most of the time when I talk to authors, it's about a movie, a specific genre of movie, or a specific artist like a, a director or a writer or an actor. Your book's a little different because it's about film, but it's about physical film. It's the real thing now we're talking about and the whole idea of collectors. Um, we know of people who collect Hollywood memorabilia and that kind of thing, but what you folks are talked about in your book, though, is the collection of the actual films. And I found it all very interesting, especially some of the copyright things you talked about. So I'm really looking forward to getting some of the background. But before before we go too far, let me learn a little bit more about each of you. Dennis, why don't you tell me your background and sort of what led you to where you are today? Well, right now, I'm the general manager at the American Cinematheque, which is a nonprofit um, based in Los Angeles that runs the 1922 um, era Egyptian theater on Hollywood Boulevard and the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. I'm also um, senior acquisitions executive for Cinelicious Picks, which is an art house distributor. Uh, we recently released 1973 Japanese animated film called Belladonna of Sadness. I did a 4K restoration, which will be out on Blu-ray soon, of a lost uh, Leslie Stevens-directed noir called Private Property, which had Warren Oates in his first film role. I've worked as a screenwriter, as a director. I was head of programming here at the American Cinematheque for a long time, from 1992 to 2005, which is how I met Jeff Joseph and a number of the other film collectors and film dealers that are profiled in A Thousand Cuts is I would reach out to them often for technical advice or if I was trying to locate a rare or unusual film print. And in Jeff's case, we organized several different film series together. We did um, a couple die transfer Technicolor festivals as well as a four-track mag series. And, and he he loaned a number of prints or gave me print sources over the years. So that's that's my background. And Jeff, you can jump in. 
Yeah, I was kind of messing with film since I was, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old, running movies in my garage for the neighborhood kids. And uh, starting, a, I sold the company, Sabucat, in 2009, but the last five or six years now, I've been working with the UCLA Archive and the Library of Congress, restoring and preserving the Laurel and Hardy Hal Roach Film Library. And uh, the goal is to put them in theaters, and that's what we've been doing. This last year, we've had various theatrical screenings, and we've got one coming up in November at the Film Forum on November 27th in New York. Well, given my age, I would have to tell you that the Hal Roach and the Laurel and Hardys is very much a part of my childhood. Of course, not in the theaters, at home on television, Saturday mornings. Well, that's and- true. I mean, I, I grew up watching them on TV also. I mean, I think we baby boomers did that, and that's how I fell in love with the movies, was watching Laurel and Hardy, and then finding out later that I could actually own physical 16-millimeter prints of them was incredible. Uh, Blackhawk Films was selling Laurel and Hardy to the public. Never occurred to me in my wildest dreams that someday I'd be working on the original elements and restoring them, but uh, it's been an absolute blast and, a, and an honor to be doing it. Well, ironically, it's one of the things that Leonard Malton points out in his chapter in our book, is that the way that many film collectors first got exposed to the movies and fell in love with film was through television. Because in the 1950s and 1960s, old movies were cheap programming for television. They needed to fill lots of airtime, and so you would see, you know, the million-dollar movie, and they would run King Kong or Casablanca or Singing in the Rain. I mean, of course, a lot of the color films were shown in black and white, and as, as Joe Dante points out they would, uh, in his chapter, they would often edit the films to fit into a shorter time slots. So he said... That's, you that's know, when, true. Local channel, local channel 7 here used to run Singing in the Rain in a 90-minute time slot with most of the musical numbers cut out. <laughs> yeah, or, or Joe comments that um, when he saw King Kong growing up, it always started when they got to Skull Island. You would never, you would never see... Most of right. the first act of the movie, they would just, you know, start it, and they were already on the on the island, you know, with the drums and the huge wall and Kong. That's so, sort of like starting the 1978 Superman with the moment he he reaches the Daily Planet, cut out the exactly, whole first exactly. 45 minutes, and what the heck? You haven't lost any story. You're just going right on. <laughs> well, well there, oh no, go ahead. So yeah, because I'm the same way. I mean, when I was growing up. Um, it was the, you know, like you say, the million-dollar movie, and that was exactly what it was called. Everybody had their own. I lived in Cleveland, Ohio, so yeah. we had Captain Penny around noon who would show Laurel, who would show uh, Little Rascals, or obviously our gang, and uh, other things, and that's where you started to see some of these things. And then uh, we actually had a few of the 8-millimeter castle film uh, versions of some of these films like you talk about in the book, and so that's why I found the whole thing. Uh, the book just reached out to me. It's interesting you mentioned Leonard Malton. The interview I just did last week, which isn't going to be published for another month or so because the book's not coming out yet, he did the foreword for that book. So I've got two in a row with a Leonard Malton collection, so that's a good thing. Oh, that's great. Well, well the other connection, of course, with, with TV and film collecting is that television is was actually the source for tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of of mostly 16-millimeter prints, um, which eventually made their way into the private collector market. Because before the advent of videotape, the way that everybody saw TV, whether it was a feature film or whether it was a TV episode, a rerun of Gilligan's Island or F Troop, 
was off of 16 millimeter prints. And those prints were often sold by the studios or the networks to the stations and then they were run. And when they were finished, they would either sell them to a salvage company, you know, who would recycle them or in many cases, you know, sell them directly to collectors. So that was actually the, the way that many 16 millimeter prints wound up in private hands is after they had kind of finished their their life in television. I think that's especially true in the 1980s as the TV stations were switching to videotape. Uh, they were dumping thousands of prints. I mean, it was just an incredible amount of film. We were getting 40-foot load, truckloads full of film in like once a month. It was incredible. Well, so then let's... So setting that up then, what we're talking about, if it isn't clear so far, when you talk about a 1,000 cuts, we're talking about films, the actual film stock... Uh, as it was usually being shown in the theaters or, in this case, on television, where collectors would be collecting the actual films in the same way that nowadays we would collect DVDs or, or, or videotapes and, you know, VHS in the past. These are people who, want, who were collecting, and I still do uh, to an extent, the actual prints that were used in theaters uh, after, as you pointed out, they were given away to salvage companies usually or some other formats or from other collectors. Yeah, well, you bear in mind it's a, it, was, it was a time period before home video, so if you wanted to see Casablanca, right. you ha- the only way to see it was like a 16-millimeter print or you know, perhaps at 3 o'clock in the morning on Channel 5 or perhaps if you lived in a big enough city, a revival theater that might run it now and then. But mostly, if you wanted to see a movie, you couldn't. Whereas if you had a 16-millimeter print, you could pull it out any time and run it. Our book is really about the death of film, the physical film medium, and it's also about the death of the collectors. And it's re- there's a perfect storm that is happening right now, which was the urgency for us to write the book. And, and it's kind of underscored by the fact that I think six or seven of the people who were profiled in the book have, have sadly passed away since we started work on it five years ago. The, the films themselves are slowly decaying. You know, all film will eventually decay. It is not a stable medium. It continues to, to essentially develop itself, no matter how well made it is. And even if you store it under ideal conditions, it will eventually break down. And a lot of the prints that were made in past decades have already broken down. Um, they, they essentially, um, well, Jeff, you can, you can explain it better. They essentially produce acetic acid, which gives off a vinegar smell and has given rise well, to yeah, the term all, vin- all, vinegar syndrome or film decomp- rot. Yeah, all plastic decomposes over time. It's a, it's, you know, a natural process, but, uh, acetate film does decompose, and one of the things is acetic acid, and so that's vinegar, basically, and so film starts to smell like vinegar. That's why it's called vinegar disease, another form of VD, you might say. And uh, all film, that, that will happen to all film over time. I mean, what happens currently, though, is the heat and humidity, you know, bad storage, bad processing, uh, that sort of thing, accelerates a natural process that's happening anyway. Whereas if you keep film cool and dry, you know, properly taken care of, it, can, it will last hundreds of years, but eventually it will go vinegar too, unfortunately. It's a fragile medium. Yeah, so all, so all of the, the, the prints are either fading and or 
breaking down, and, that, and that's something that you just can't stop. They're not making any more new prints for the most part, except in, in rare instances for for archival presentations. The studios have pretty much gotten out of the business of of distributing or striking new 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter films. They're still making film stock. There's a handful of directors out there, whether it's Quentin Tarantino or J.J. Abrams, Christopher Nolan, who still want to shoot on film. And so companies like Kodak are still making film stock available. But for the most part, you know, the, the studios have completely divorced themselves from distributing movies. So we're not going to have any more new prints out there. So, so pretty much it's, you know, the prints that are, that are in existence right now. The collectors themselves are aging, you know, most of, of those who were active in, you know, the 1970s or 80s, which were the kind of glory years for film collecting. They're now reaching or have reached retirement age. They're dealing with, you know, just normal problems of aging. So, so, you know, they're facing their own mortality and there isn't a younger generation that is really out there to carry on this passion because you can now get access to film in so many different ways. You can stream it. You can see it on Blu-ray. You can see it on DVD. And so the collectors that grew up, you know, in that post-World War II baby boom generation, they had a relationship to the movies, that, a kind of passion for film that I don't think we'll ever see again. And the collector subculture was almost like a hidden priesthood devoted to the movies. And, you know, many of them would build their own screening rooms in their basement or in their homes that were like their little temples of movie worship. And as the collectors are dying out, we're, we're losing those little kind of private film museums or, or cinema worlds that are a particularly fascinating, almost architectural part of of Los Angeles. And, you know, Jeff, maybe you can talk about Ken Kramer, whose office slash archive museum, the Clip Joint, was one of the most remarkable little temples of movie obsession. And you had known Ken for many years, and he, he just passed away, sadly, a few months ago. And I don't know, maybe you want to describe the Clip Joint and what it was like. Uh, the Clip Joint was a place, as you say, with posters all over the place, film props, but mostly films, 35 and 16 millimeter films, pretty much anywhere you try to sit, there was a film. Uh, pretty much any time you tried to walk anywhere, there was a film in your way. An awful lot of film. But Ken at least looked at his film. He ran film all the time. And uh, he loved film very much, and he would invite people over to see it and, and share it with them. Some collectors did and don't. I mean, there's certainly collectors I've known who collect things and never run them. It's kind of amazing that you'd spend all that money and never run it, but there are collectors who do just that. No, there are people who collect toys and never open them, so... <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. Well, another one, of the, another one of the collectors that we interviewed for the book, Matt Spiro, is a retired former projectionist, and he lives with, with his partner in Hollywood, and he, he built this beautiful miniature movie palace in their home, and he's decorated it with bits and pieces that he salvaged from old movie palaces that were being torn down in Long Beach. And he would be driving around and he would see them starting to to demolish one of these great movie palaces. And he would stop his car and he would run in and he would say, you know, can I have those seats or can I have that wall sconce? And so his his house has this beautiful little 
jewel box theater that maybe seats 25 people, but in it are the ghosts, the bones of all these great long-gone movie palaces. And now the, the sad thing is that Matt and his partner are having to move, and so their little miniature jewel box theater will soon be gone as well. And, and he says, you know, that he's going to try and rebuild it in their new home out in the desert. But, you know, he's he's already, I, I think Matt is in his early 70s, and so, you know, he's not a young man, and he doesn't even project film, you know, at home himself anymore. So the chances that he's really going to go to all the trouble of rebuilding this movie theater are you know, probably fairly slim. So that's going to disappear soon. And again, that's, that's part of the cultural history of Los Angeles that very few people know about and and it's a really fascinating well, I wouldn't say just Los hidden Angeles. world I wouldn't say just Los Angeles I mean there's people all over the country with these yeah that's that's true there, there was a very active East Coast scene there were actually film collecting and dealing scenes that kind of grew up around major distribution centers and, and Jeff, you you knew about this, but there was one in Kansas City, at, in the Midwest. I mean, you know, so so wherever the studios had kind of distribution depots, that was an opportunity for for prints to slip well, out into they, the they collector market. Com- yeah, there used to be a company called National Film Service that held that handled most of the 35 millimeter theatrical distribution for all the studios. And each major city, each each area of the country had their own depot where they stored 35 millimeter prints. Now, mind you, they went out of business in the 90s, and now you know Technicolor and, I, and Deluxe, I believe, do the distribution themselves. But back in the day, these distribution places were all over the country, owned by individual people, and most of them, a good number of them anyway, had people selling prints out the back door to film collectors. Uh, they were they were told by the studios, you know, junk all your prints of you know movie X Y Z. And yeah, most of them would go in the dumper, but a few would make their way out to film collectors at maybe $50 a pop. So basically, what we're talking about, and I'm sure everything's clear, but in case there's somebody who might be listening and who might not understand this completely, these days most movies are not projected from projectors anymore. We don't use 35 millimeter film print or film stock or, or any kind of film stock anymore. Everything's done digitally. And it's projected digitally, so it's that's the equivalent of it's the equivalent of what you have at home for a, a video projector. Only it's a professional version of that, essentially. Right, right. Film, films. If you go to a movie theater, the way that you're seeing a film projected is generally through like a 4K digital projector in the projection booth, and they're distributed now on what's called a DCP, which stands for Digital Cinema Package, and is essentially a portable hard drive that the studios. Send to the movie theater, you you download it or ingest it onto a server where it's held. They send a, a security key to the theater, which is called a KDM, that allows you to unlock the film for, for X number of screenings, and then um, it locks it again. This is to prevent piracy, which is, as we detail in the book, was a major concern for the studios in the MPAA for many decades now. So... You know, there. You know, if you're if you're trying to collect film now, I guess you could have a collection of DCPs, but, uh, yeah, but I don't think it has. The, I don't think it has the same 
romance. It's essentially would be like having a collection of, of portable hard drives. And the other issue is that, you know, in, in five or ten years, who knows, the standards may change. So you right. might not well, even be able to play those DCPs in the same way five or ten well, years from now. you can't play them now. It's prob- you can't play them now because without a KDM, you can't play them. Without the key, you can't play them. So and to the best of my knowledge, nobody's hacked DCPs. Maybe they have it. I just don't know it. But uh, basically, yeah. if you have a theatrical DCP, unless you have the key, it's just a brick. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, not that many collectors collect DCPs for that reason. They're, they're pretty useless unless you have the key. Well, yeah, so, there, so there, really is, there really is no collecting market for the way the films are distributed now. So 35mm, 16mm film has been around for, for a long time. In, in terms of the, you know, the, the kind of life of media formats, it was, it was extremely simple and very stable. I mean, they developed it in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and was was in use as the main commercial format, 35mm, until the past 10 or 15 years. Um, and but when, you know, but when it was phased out, it happened at first slowly, but then very, very rapidly. So really, the past four to five years, we've seen almost all major commercial chains get rid of their 35 millimeter projection. And uh, one of the, the dealers, Steve Newton, that we interviewed for the book, sent us these really heartbreaking photos of dumpsters outside of his office filled with junked 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter projectors. Hmm. And more than anything else, that, that just, you know, picture says a thousand words, that, that talks very eloquently about what's happening. And projectionists, we have a whole chapter, and in fact, the chapter is called A Thousand Cuts, which gave its name to the book itself. And um, film projectionists are one of the most endangered careers in America because they they really don't need them anymore, apart from a handful of places, Cinematheques and film museums like the American Cinematheque, UCLA Film Archive, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Museum of Modern Art, Places like that that still screen 35 millimeter, 70 millimeter, 16 millimeter, as well as digital. But for most commercial theater chains, you know, you know, you could be an assistant manager, you could be the person who sells popcorn, and you can plug the DCP in and download it onto the server and push play. You don't really need any extensive training to to project a film anymore. Plus, I think most of the, a lot of these theaters are doing everything 100% automated. There isn't even anybody up in the booth, so to speak. It just does everything on its own. Yep, that, that's right. So, so the job of projectionist there's actually a series of, of technological changes which which made the job of projectionist endangered and now essentially extinct. Is the the first was when they changed over from um, carbon arc projection to xenon bulbs. And, and carbon arc, they used to have two carbon rods that would run electric current between them and, and would create this blinding light that was actually used to project the film. And when they switched over from the carbon arcs to xenon bulbs, that was a major change because those, those carbon rods burned down very quickly. You had to replace them about every 40 to 60 minutes. So that meant they, that you needed to have a projectionist there who was constantly switching those carbon rods out and maintaining the projectors. 
So first, when you went to Xenon, you needed fewer projectionists. Then when you went to the platter system, which essentially it was almost like an 8-track tape for film, you'd build up an entire print onto these big metal Sorry. platters that would run it continuously in a loop and then rewind it onto the big spool. So that allowed for multiplexes, where now you could have one projectionist who would be running four, six, eight, ten, or twelve screens. Worse than that, you could take one 35-millimeter print and run it through several different screening rooms at the same time. You could go up in the booth and you could see this film winding all over the entire booth. That was one for the first projector, then the second projector, then the third projector. It would be incredible wear and tear on these prints that were never designed for that. Well, that was that's part of the thing I, I remember is going to see a popular film multiple times, and as time went on, that print would get more and more uh, damaged, and although occasionally they would strike new prints, generally speaking, in fact, when we had what were you know the second run and third run theaters, if you went to see a movie in a third run theater, you know the ninety nine cent theater, the chances are good that that print was going to be in pretty bad shape. Yep, that's true. But but at least then you know when you know when you were still running film, you still needed a projectionist. Right. You still needed somebody with some skill who would get the print from you know the octagonal Goldberg cans and build it up onto the platter, and then when the, the run of the film was over, they would break it down again send it on to the next theater or back to the distributor. But now that we've transitioned from film into digital, you, you don't really need projectionists, again, apart from a, a few cinema texts. So that's part of, of the, the collateral damage that the transition from, from analog film to digital has, has been responsible for. And, and one of the most fascinating kind of thoughtful interviews that we did in the book was with a collector named Ronnie James, who has what is arguably the largest private collection of television prints anywhere in the world. And these are prints of old TV episodes, of rare kinescopes. You know, a lot of the things that Ronnie has in his collections are, are collection are one-of-a-kind items. Right. He has the only copy of it anywhere in, in existence. And he's extremely depressed now because he, he has this enormous collection and he feels it's of no financial or cultural value anymore. So he sits in his house in Orange County, surrounded by, you know, his 20,000 reels of film, and the phone doesn't ring. So he used to be able to license footage from these things for documentaries on classic Hollywood celebrities. Nobody really wants that anymore. They don't, they don't make those kind of documentaries. They're, you know, if it's A&E bio, it's going to be on somebody like the more recent celebrity, Britney Spears or Justin mm -hmm. Bieber, they don't need to go to guys like Ronnie to get footage on Fred Astaire or Bing Crosby or Gene Kelly. And so, you know, his collection is incredibly imperiled. And one of the things he talks about is the theory of creative destruction, which was first proposed by a writer named Joseph Schumpeter in the mid-1940s. And it says that as technology changes, not only does it... it supplant or replace the old technology, but it can wipe out the way of life that was associated with it. And Ronnie likens it to the end of, of whaling in the 19th century when the electric light came in. So not only did it, it you know, spell the end of, of commercial hunting of whales, which was a good thing, but it wiped out all of the towns and the way of life in um, New England that was associated with that, and we're seeing a similar thing now with the change from analog film to digital. 
and and I think where you see it most acutely is that it's wiped out this small but incredibly fascinating and passionate subculture of film collectors and and film dealers. Um, and that's and that was really the most compelling reason for Jeff and I to write the book because if we said if we don't interview these collectors now and if we don't document it um, in five years and ten years, it won't be there. And that's the truth. We've already seen it. It's essentially died in front of our eyes. It's disappeared. There are there are a few younger collectors who are out there who are still buying 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter prints, but it it's a you know it's a pale version of you know it's a, it's it's barely a shadow of what that subculture was in the late 60s 70s and 80s that when when Jeff was not to mention the best known dealer the in the country. younger collectors well the few younger collectors that are out there you know they tend to want to see prints of things they grew up with they want the matrix they want star wars they don't really care about casablanca or the big sleep you know so let's go back a little bit to the beginning of the book itself where some of the legal because you, you, you open the book or you start very early on in the book with discussing the legal issues of owning this material back in the day, so to speak. This was prior to home video, and therefore um, this was before any of the court cases that uh, changed the whole, I mean, like I say, when home video first started, as you point out in the book, the studios had wanted no video recorders. They only wanted video players in the house so people could not record anything. That was the, the court case, and it was to they claimed to protect their copyright. But talk a little bit about um, the, the, the legal cases that sort of pointed out some of the n other negatives of being a collector of well, the, film. The, the studio's point of view was always that they had never sold prints to the public, therefore anything that a collector had must have been obtained illegally, and therefore they should be arrested and, you know, their collection seized and that sort of thing. Unfortunately, that wasn't really true. The studios, in fact, had sold prints to various entities, collectors, uh, the military, the airlines, uh, movie stars would be able to buy prints of their movies, that sort of thing. So there were actually legal sales. And once there's legal sales, there's the first sale doctrine, whereas once you buy something, you don't own the copyright to it, no, but you can sell it like you would a used book, for example. Right. And uh, but you know from the studio point of view they kind of hated collectors until about the 80s. Then they got then they don't really care about collectors anymore because they have more important things to worry about, which is video piracy, which you know film collectors don't care about at all. They're not into video. Yeah, because I remember, you know, I, I obviously like I say we probably our family was probably one of the first people to buy a video recorder, and I remember that was back in the day where they had. Conflicting formats, and you had VHS and Betamax, and there was a that was still going on. And then, of course, there was the court cases because, as we, as you point out, but then in, you've got the example of the person who actually won his case in you know at, at the first level, only to see it thrown out on a, on a higher level. If he had well, won, the studios always had money to spend on, right. on legal things. Collectors rarely did. And unfortunately, it ruined him. I mean, it basically put him out of the out of the collecting because he couldn't. Have, you know, he knew he had lost, and he could not continue on with a legal fight. Yeah, that was Evan H. Foreman, and and I'm really glad that we were able to talk to him. Um, he's he's sadly one of the the former jailers who who passed away in the past two years. 
but we were able to interview him for the book. And he was a, a fairly small time film dealer based in um, Mobile, Alabama. And what he was doing was, was reconditioning used 16 millimeter prints. He was essentially fixing them up, you know, um, fixing the, the torn splices, cleaning the prints, and then he would resell them to collectors for anywhere from, I think, you know, 50 or $60 for a, a fairly low-end beat-up print to maybe $150 on, on the high-end. But the studios decided to make an example out of him, and so in the first major civil case, they filed suit against him in 1971. And what was amazing about Evans' case is that he decided to fight it, not only in court, but, but kind of using his own catalog to alert other collectors and dealers about what was happening. And he was, he was really prescient, you know, because his case happened about three years before the much more publicized sort of, you know, film raids or film busts of 1974-1975, including the the arrest of actor Roddy McDowell and the seizure of his collection of film and video. And McDowell was by far the best-known collector who was targeted in the FBI and Justice Department raids. And, and of course, this was right around the time where Jeff was indicted as well. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that experience, what you know, why it came about, and and what happened. Yeah, I was. I had only sent out one film list, I think, in my life at that point, but it had been uh, acquired by the FBI when they raided somebody else, so they had my name. And uh, they came to the door one day uh, with a search warrant uh, for the garage and for the storage unit. They took all the film. Uh, they asked me to sign a release, which I did not sign. I guess some people do. And then uh, I was indicted at federal court a few months later. Uh, when I went down to court, I met my other defendants. Most of them I had never met until that day. That's what a small-time dealer I was. I didn't even know these people. It was uh, an interesting time for sure. I mean, almost nobody fought it because we couldn't afford to fight it. We didn't have any money. Most of us pled guilty to single misdemeanor counts of copyright infringement, and that was the end of it because we couldn't afford to fight. Even though legally we probably were in the right, it didn't really matter. We, it was way too expensive to fight it. And what, and what, Jeff, you were convicted for was it, was you were actually selling prints to dealers in South Africa. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, the, the original indictment for me was uh, several counts of uh, copyright infringement and one count of dealing stolen property, uh, which was a felony. That was dropped. And then I pled guilty to a random misdemeanor, which happened to be 10 prints of the TV show It Takes a Thief, <laughs> which I thought was kind of appropriate in many ways. Uh but that was, it was totally random. And the deal was supposed to be we all got six months suspended sentences. Unfortunately, each, each defendant had a different judge. My judge was an appointee of Nixon's who did not believe in suspended sentences. That turns out in the federal court system, the judge, does, the judge does not necessarily have to go along with what the lawyers agree on. And so I was expecting to go home that day. I didn't even say goodbye to my wife. I just went down to court, assuming I'd come home, and instead uh, he, did, he didn't say uh, spend a sentence after six months. They hauled me away in handcuffs. It was an interesting day. Well, there was a tremendous black market that grew up because at, at the time in the uh, early to mid-70s, there was a cultural embargo where the major studios and TV networks weren't making their films and TV shows available to, to South Africa because of apartheid. And so this black market grew up 
where Jeff and other dealers were, were selling films and TV shows over there and, and hundreds of, of film rental shops sprang up in South Africa and they were precursors to, to like video rental stores, but where you could actually rent a 16 millimeter projector and several prints for, you know, a few dozen rand South African money and you would take the projector home with the prints and you would project them at home and then you would bring the projector and the prints back. It's kind of amazing. Um, but people and like, had to go through to, to actually see to actually see film or TV. They were so hungry to see these images because I think it was state-controlled TV and it offered very very little for the average viewer. So so they were desperate to see anything they could, any kind of entertainment. So we were selling things like Mod Squad, Mission Impossible, Manix, you know, shows from the '60s that by the '70s were in syndication, action-type shows mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were getting an awful lot of money for shows that in the States would maybe sell for 10 or $15. Uh, they would sell for a couple hundred dollars in South Africa. So for a while, it was a great deal until it wasn't anymore, of course. And now, of course, what's funny is is that it's normal nowadays that even if people can see them, it's not unusual to find pirated versions of current movies and television shows because it's it's become a very easy thing to do. And even though there is peop- there are people who get caught... There's still quite a bit of people doing it. Most of the time, hopefully, they're not charging, but you never know. But, I mean, it's... it's well, it's you know, be- bear in mind, copying video is much easier right. than copying. Oh, copying film, you need a film lab. You need stock. You need chemicals. You need you know, people who know what they're doing. Uh, and you need you know, a place to do it, and it's not necessarily simple, easy, or cheap. Copying video, you just need two machines. You push, play, and record when all said and done. So then going from that initial story in the early 70s, and you've already brought it, you already mentioned it, Dennis, but um, the major uh, crackdown that happened in the mid-70s, as you pointed out, that particularly affected Roddy McDowell, who, if people don't know him, he had a number of major roles, but probably the one that most people know him about, of course, they never even saw his face, was in Planet of the Apes and some of the sequels where he appeared as one of the younger apes. And Roddy McDowell is somebody who had his own film library. And not only was he uh, arrested and had his uh, film library seized, but what happened when he was questioned by the authorities? Well, he... He was under tremendous pressure, and and I think you you have to put yourself in Roddy McDowell's shoes. You know, um, he was being charged as a a film pirate. Well, not only did he have film prints, but he was also recording movies off of television. And so this was at the very dawn of video technology, and and I think that probably put the fear of God into the MPAA as well as the notion that he was recording things off of TV. As, as you pointed out, when the first Betamax recorders came out, the studios actually sued to make them playback only. They didn't want people being able to record shows like Seinfeld or Cheers off of TV. And it was a landmark case that actually went to the Supreme Court and established the, the um, legal definition of time shifting or you know we would now call it TiVoing but which is basically that you're able, that it's legally permissible for you to record something at home to view it at a more convenient time but the the major studio the networks had sued to prevent private individuals from doing that and 
and electronics company from even making video recorders that would do that. So, so Roddy was not only collecting his own films, but he was recording things off of TV in the early 70s. And under enormous pressure from the government, he rolled over and named other collectors, including Rock Hudson, Mel Torme, and Dick Martin of Ronan Martin's Laugh-In fame. And he's gotten a lot of, of flack for it over the years that he essentially ratted out other collectors. And I think that may be a harsh judgment. I mean, McDowell gave an enormous amount to his profession. He obviously loved films and film history. And honestly, if I were in his position, I'm not sure what I would have done, you know, in in his shoes. Um, but apparently he stopped collecting films. He used to have regular screenings for other collectors and enthusiasts at his home, and he stopped doing those altogether. And I mean, it's, it's very sad, um, you know, that you can still go online and Google his name and film collecting, and people will, you know, refer to him as a fink for for ratting out other collectors, which is sad that, that that's part of his his legacy. You know, we talked to Bob Osborne of uh, Turner Classic Movies fame, who was friends with both Roddy McDowell and with Rock Hudson, and he, he told us some great stories that that Hudson had of private film collection as well, but it was it was almost entirely his own movies. Mm-hmm. So he had, you know, he had Prince of Giant and he had Prince of Pillow Talk and think, every only movies that he had he had starred in and and Bob Osborne when he was young and a and a diehard film fan, he helped organize Hudson's collection and he would you know, he wrote the names of all the films and kind of decorated the cans so they were easy for him to find. He said that in the early 70s, when word started to spread through the collector subculture that the FBI and the Justice Department were targeting collectors, that Hudson had a fake brick wall built to disguise the entrance to his film vault. So when the feds came calling, he said, I don't have any films, and they couldn't find it. (laughs) So the, the, the irony is that pretty much every collector who was active in the 1970s that we spoke with was contacted at some point by the FBI. We were doing a book signing last week and a guy who was in his late 50s or early 60s came up to buy a copy of the book and he said, oh yeah, you know, I used to be a collector myself and I was active in this period and I said, were you contacted by the FBI? He goes, yeah, I was. So everybody, and that's, that's one of the things that makes this subculture so remarkable is for that brief, very, very frantic period in the early to mid-late 1970s, they were so heavily targeted by the FBI and the Justice Department. And it created a culture of secrecy and paranoia that lasts to this day. I mean, there are still collectors that essentially live behind unmarked doors. One of the guys we interviewed for the book he his apartment is has an unmarked door there's no number on it and it's right by the laundry room in his building and if you don't know that he lives there you you wouldn't know that that was actually the entrance to an apartment and it's because he's paranoid about the feds coming someday to take his film collection you know the other thing is that is that um a number of the collectors were were also gay men and and they were of that generation where you know they were being regularly harassed or intimidated, then you add to that 
the FBI comes banging on your door one day asking where you got your film prints and shoving documents at you and trying to seize your films, it's no wonder these guys were paranoid and still are. Right. And yet, in some cases, as you, some of the examples you gave in the book, some of these folks actually did a benefit to the film industry because they sometimes were finding prints or sections of prints of films that everybody thought they'd been lost. And yet sometimes they were able to, to, to find some of the missing footage or, and you mentioned the, the one example I can remember off the top of my head is King Kong. And obviously there were all kinds of discussions about scenes from that movie over time. And uh, a collector actually found some of the lost footage. And there are films today that are probably being shown on video, you know, in video format that include footage that was found by a collector. Not just footage, but soundtracks as well. Uh, a lot of the studios weren't very careful with their stereo soundtracks in the 50s because the stock was so expensive they would erase it and reuse it and didn't keep copies of anything. So there's dozens of feature films from Fox, Warners, and other studios where they no longer had the stereophonic soundtracks, but collectors did. And so they managed to loan them to, to the studios over the years, and quite a few of those now exist because collectors had the prints. Well, one of the most fascinating collectors slash distributors that we talked to was Mike Vraney of Something Weird Video, who sadly passed away a few months after we interviewed him. Nobody knew that he, he was sick and fighting cancer at the time we talked with him. But he had devoted most of his adult life to ferreting out grindhouse and sexploitation movies from the late 50s, 60s, and early 70s, what what we would call softcore movies, but, in, you know, in all these different sort of subterranean subgenres like white coders and nudie cuties and nudie roughies, these were movies that were so far off the radar, radar screen for most film buffs that, you know, uh, they didn't even know that they had ever existed, let alone were in danger of being lost. So, you know, a lot, a lot of people would have said, well, this is just trash, but to Mike... These movies were gems. They were, you know, somebody had gone out, they had made them, they had acted in them, they had directed them, starred in them, and he wanted to preserve them at all costs. And he talked about this surreptitious discovery. A friend of his said, hey, you know, there's this antique store in Washington, and in the back room, it's stuffed from floor to ceiling with film negatives. And he went there, and what it was were original 35-millimeter negatives to these kind of soft-core girly loops that were made in the 1930s and 1940s that were completely lost, and there were hundreds and hundreds of these. And he bought the entire back room for $200 and loaded up his van and then spent the next 10 or 20 years, he, he released them first on VHS video and then on DVD. So you could argue about, you know how much cultural value they they have but they were they were films they were they were part of american culture even if they were sexploitation and mike devoted himself to making sure that they were preserved and and you know i think he was proud of that and and rightly so especially because it was a you know it was an area i guess you would say a kind of sleazy dark corner of of you know, film culture that nobody else was really paying attention to. You know, the 
you know, it's a lot of the classics or art house movies that would get the lion's share of attention from from archives or, or restorationists. But how many people are going to go out there and, you know, um, restore Olga's House of Shame or, or some of the movies that Mike was responsible for preserving? So I'm I'm really happy that we were able to get his story in the book while he was still around to tell it. And then, of course, a couple some of the people you talked to, and we already mentioned Leonard Moulton, are famous people, for lack of a better way to put it. I mean, we've talked about Leonard Moulton, and we talked about Roddy McDowell, but one of the people you interviewed was Joe Dante, the director. And it turns out he was he is or was a collector as well. Oh, he Joe is. Yeah, no, Joe, Joe is incredibly active and incredibly generous with... Um, Loaning prints. He, he actually has a unique three-way collection, which he um, put together with John Davison, who was a lifelong friend of his. They worked together um, first in the late 60s on an on a underground um, compilation called The Movie Orgy that was used to be distributed to kind of midnight movies and, and film campuses. And then later they worked on um, Hollywood Boulevard in Piranha. And John went on to produce films like RoboCop and Starship. Troopers and the airplane movies, um, and then a director named Tim Hunter who did The River's Edge, um, a number of other great art house films. So the three of them decided to team up, and essentially whatever prints they would buy would go into this kind of three-way collection, much of which is now on on deposit here in LA with um, the Academy Film Archive. And we screened. You know, some amazingly rare prints over the years from Joe's collection. The one that, the one event that I, uh, that I talk about in the book that really jumps out is, um, uh, an amazing early 1960s apocalyptic sci-fi film directed by Val Guest called The Day the Earth Caught Fire. And it's very hard to find original 35 millimeter prints of the film. And, and Joe and John and Tim happen to have one. We screened it once a few years ago, and the director of the film, Val Guest, was still alive. And at the end of the show, the entire audience of about 350 people jumped to their feet and spontaneously burst into applause. And, and, and Val, I was there with him, sitting beside him, and he literally burst into tears. He was so moved, and they were applauding just because the film was, was so moving. They thought it was so damned good. That they and it was it was one of the few times that I ever saw an audience do that 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 they just had to jump to their feet and start applauding because they were they were so surprised and moved by seeing this film and that wouldn't have happened if if Joe had not bought and preserved that print and then freely loaned it for that screening. So, so Joe and John and Tim are, I think, one of the finest examples of of people in the industry. They, they make films themselves, but who feel uh, a sense of obligation to make prints of films. These aren't their own films necessarily. Right. Uh, uh, you know, for other directors, other artists, to make them freely available. And, and there's a great quote from Joe. You know, he said that when he, when he and John first started out and they would do all sorts of crazy things to get their hands on prints because we always op- operated under the assumption that nobody cared about these prints but us. And he said, and you know what? We were right. 
And I, th- and I think that's, that's the truth. Collectors did care, you know, obsessively, you know, maybe, you know, wildly and over the top. But if it wasn't for a lot of those collectors out there, they, they wouldn't have preserved a lot of material that have otherwise would have disappeared. Well, and I know growing up myself, I used to read the, uh, you know, like the famous Monsters of Filmland and those magazines, and they would mention films. And, of course, as you've pointed out, the only way you could see them would be if they showed up on midnight movies or happened to be shown in a theater as part of some sort of a uh, special uh, event. But chances were good you were never going to see them, and yet those are the kind of films in many ways we're talking about. These aren't the ones that necessarily... The studios cared so much about that they cared for them lovingly and made sure they were still in great shape and all that. So, and I yeah, think, but, but even those movies, you know, uh, there were collectors who would run you know, Gone with the Wind for their friends and family because even Gone with the Wind you couldn't see unless it was in release or you know in those days it wasn't on television. So unless it was in release, you didn't see Gone with the Wind. Now, right. of course, nobody would show up for a screening like that because anybody could see Gone with the Wind in their own. Well, the funny part about it is I do have these occasional, yeah, some some of the movie theaters will, will show classic movies, but on the big screen, and they get a certain amount of interest. People will come to see them because of, of being able to see them that way, but you're right. I mean, the average person, I'm sure, has absolutely no interest in seeing them that way anymore, although, like I say, I still remember going to see Gone with the Wind in the theater because, as you pointed out, it was the only way to see it. Well, Jeff was responsible for... Finding and, and identifying and preserving a lot of unique one of a kind materials. You know, Jeff, maybe you can talk about um, the original Citizen Kane trailer and about the final footage for Greta Garbo. Oh well, you know, Greta Garbo. I guess it was 1949. She was going to make a comeback, and so they did some uh, some costume makeup tests that she paid for, and she didn't like the way she looked in them, so she ordered them destroyed, and the project never got made. and I had read in various books that this footage had been shot, but it had been listed as lost footage for years and years. And uh, we found two of the three reels, then we found the third reel, so those have all been preserved. They're now at, the, at UCLA. But for years, those, those did not exist until we found them, and uh, we dug two of the three reels came out of the trash can, actually. We dug those out of a trash receptacle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was an excellent find, I have to say. What was the other thing you asked about, Dennis? Oh, Citizen, uh, the original Citizen Kane trailer. Oh, right, the Citizen Kane trailer. When what happened, a lot of the studios over the years, when they would reissue a movie, they would recut the trailer for reissue, but they didn't save the original version. And For example, Wizard of Oz is that way. The original trailer for Wizard of Oz does not exist, or Robin Hood's another one. The pictures of Robin Hood, the original trailer doesn't exist. But Citizen Kane, that happened with, and uh, at some point someone did find an original 35-millimeter nitrate copy of the trailer, they loaned it to Turner, and so t- all the elements that exist on that are from that original 35 millimeter, which I later acquired for $500, the most I ever paid for a trailer because of what it was. And uh, it's now part of the uh, at UCLA. They, they do have it now. So what well, I'll ask each of you, although you tended, you know, the book was done together, um, what was your biggest surprise? What What really got you in your interviews of of the people you talk to, of what they found? Um, I, think, I think for me, I can say talking to people like Al Beardsley and having them be honest and saying the various horrible things they did over the years on the record, that was a surprise. Dennis? For me, the biggest surprise, I think, was hearing 
the the personal stories of the collectors, not even related to to their love of the movies, but you know where, where they grew up, about their families, their mothers, their fathers, their brothers and sisters, you know, um, and then they would talk about you know one of the collectors, uh, uh, Mark Punswick talked about the. Uh, cutting a hole in the the wall of his parents' living room so that he could right. make a little projection booth window and he put his, his projector on the other side of it. So, you know, there were all these, you know, these great little, you know, very human and revealing stories about, the, you know, the lives of these men. And, and it was it was an almost entirely male subculture. It was very, very homogeneous. It was, it was mostly white male from middle-class families because um, film collecting was an expensive hobby. It was. Even back in the 60s and and 70s, you know, you could pay anywhere from $50 to $150 or $200 um, on the high end for, you know, a desirable 16-millimeter film. And then when, (laughs) when Jeff got back into dealing... In the late 80s, early 90s, he used to joke that he, he added a zero to the cost of, of films, which isn't far from the truth. Prices really escalated, especially for 35-millimeter film in the 90s and early 2000s before the kind of bottom fell out of the market. Uh, for many years, 16-millimeter was by far the most um, sought-after and, and most common format for collectors because it was very easy to project. You know, it's like you could have a 16-millimeter projector like you used to see in... in AV departments in high school, right. and just put that on your dining room table or kitchen table, and put up a little portable screen. If you wanted to project 35 millimeter, that was a professional format. You needed to have two projectors to do changeovers. You needed to have kind of a home theater setup. You needed to have a lot of technical expertise and money. So, so 35 millimeter collecting was was the exception and not the norm for for most of the life of the subculture. It wasn't until really the 90s when a lot of people became more interested in 35mm because it was, was, you know, much higher resolution. But, you know, even at the height of the market, the most that anybody would pay for a print, and Jeff, you know, you can address this because that was your bread and butter, would be, what, like 7500 to 10000 maybe for... What were like the rarest prints you ever? Well, sold? I mean, the, the rarest films I ever sold were mid Technicolor prints and 35 millimeter thing in the rain and bandwagon for seven thousand a pop. But that was to somebody who had money, and most collectors did not really have that kind of money to do that sort of thing. I would say the high end titles, maybe five thousand, a little bit more than that. But nowadays, not. I mean, I, I would be surprised if anything would sell for that kind of money anymore. Well, um, so. How long did this project take you from when you first decided you were going to write this book? I mean, obviously, it's 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 been your life's work, especially Jeff. But uh, when? How long from the moment you said, "Okay, I think there's a book here," till till the day you finally finished it and sent it off to the publisher? How long did about the whole four pro- years? Would you say, Dennis? Well, 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 Jeff had actually been working on it long before he and I started talking about it with his his um, late wife, Florin Jones-Jones. If they had actually amassed a tremendous amount of research into the subject of film collecting, film piracy, which we drew on. So there were a lot of fantastic, you know, um, articles from the trade papers and different magazines. 
But it was really, yeah, about about four years from when Jeff and I, and I I think it was prompted by the fact that we saw the the subculture vanishing so quickly. So we interviewed well over a hundred former and current collectors and dealers, and then we narrowed that down to about 25 who are profiled in chapters in the book. There, there are several included in the projectionist chapter. And, you know, the hardest thing for us was actually deciding what to include and what to leave out because there were some amazing and compelling collector stories. But at a certain point, we also realized that, they were, you know, some of them would overlap um, if, they, if they collected classic Hollywood films or musicals or science fiction movies. And so we wanted to show a really wide range, which is why... You know, we have Mike Rainey's chapter about sexploitation, of Mike Hyatt's chapter on his over 30-year quest to preserve and restore a single film, which is the early 1960s sci-fi classic, The Day of the Triffids, which is this sort of wonderful, mad, heroic one-man quest to, to save this one movie at all costs, which in many ways has come to define his adult career and his life. Is his passion for this one film, and it's so, still not finished. Yes, and it's still, and Mike is still working on it. Um, I don't think it'll ever be finished with the, the day of the trip. So, so it was really hard, hard for us. Our, our first draft of the book, I kid you not, was about seven hundred pages because we just wanted everything to be in there, and we sent it to a few publishers, and they said, "Yeah, you know, this is a fascinating subject matter, but but nobody's going to read a seven hundred page book." So we really had to go back to the drawing board, kind of start over, really cut it down. And um, a mutual friend of ours, Sylvia Townsend, um, put us in touch with the University Press of Mississippi. And normally they'll get a proposal or maybe a sample chapter on a book. And, and we said, well, we, you know, we can, say, we can send you the finished manuscript. And they read it very quickly and they said, yeah, we love it. This is a subject that nobody has covered before. Um, I, I honestly, if we started now, I don't know that we would be able to to do justice to the book or to the subculture because some of the really key players like Ken Kramer, um, Jeff's one-time partner and, and longtime friend, have passed away. And without those stories, you know, you're not getting the heart and soul of, of what made collectors, you know, Sacrifice everything. Tony Toronto, the, the one-legged former Broadway gypsy that we profile in one of the most heartbreaking chapters in the book, um, who, who sadly has also passed away, said that he would often go without eating. He would give up dinner so that he would have enough money to buy a particular print. And he said that's part of the illness of collecting. And there, and there was a lot of, of illness, to be honest. You know, some of these guys would, would easily qualify as hoarders, we would go into you know houses or apartments where there's huge teetering stacks of, of vinegar-smelling film prints and dusty projectors that hadn't been used in decades, and yellowed newspapers and press books, and you know teetering stacks that, if there were a tremor, would you know bury the owner of all this stuff. So, th- so there was definitely a hoarding impulse with a lot of these collectors. Um, you know, again, you know, that we wanted to 
to do justice to that as well. You know, we, we, we tried to be as honest and fair as we could with, with the book, both the, the positive side of the subculture and also the negative side. Well, I, for one, am thankful for university presses. They These days especially, it's just unbelievable some of the books that they have published that uh, help to better explain the film. You know, like I said, a number of the authors I talked to wrote their books for university presses, and it's, it's just unbelievable how much is out there these days of really great books, and there's no question in my mind that yours is definitely on that list, and uh so I really am glad that I came across it, and I'm really glad that I got a chance to talk to both of you. I hope the book continues to do well for you, and and I hope uh, that the the collectors out there that still remain find some uh, solace and and comfort in what you wrote. So thank you, Dennis. Uh, Joel, thank you so much for t- taking the time to talk with us. And thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much, Joel. Really appreciate it. Hopefully you found this topic to be as fascinating as I did. Thanks to Dennis and Jeff for sharing their experiences. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.